it's the finest podcast out on the void sea. Hacked in the dark. Who's hosting this podcast with its co-host three? Emma. Eli. Michelle. Who's guesting and what lovely game shall we see? Dustin Moslipe. Hacked in the dark. Hacked in the dark. Hacked in the dark. Hacked in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm speechless. <laughs> All right, secret plan achieved. Feeling really yes. good about that. <laughs> Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Eli, and my pronouns are he, him. I am Emma, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Nichelle, pronouns she, her, and we'll be your hosts for today's episode. Yes, today we sit down with our guest who has never, ever been on the show before, Justin Ford, to talk about his upcoming game, Mothlight. Welcome, Justin. Hi, thank you for hosting today. Yeah, you bet. Uh, real change of pace for you, huh? Yeah, it would be really awkward if I was interviewing myself. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in your power to do it, though. <laughs> well, we're here today to flip the script, right? You're not the host. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so where are the questions? Hit me. So, Justin, I think everyone familiar with you will recognize you if they've listened to the podcast before. Mm -hmm. I think you've been in pretty much every episode. Yes, including the first one in which I was also not the host and was being interviewed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I may have missed one or two, actually. I think that there's one where Ray takes over and uh, per perhaps another where Jacob is, is the host mm. for an episode. But yeah, that was actually just kind of a happy accident because we, we really, when we started this podcast, and it has been a, a group effort, but... I just kind of really enjoyed hosting, and that was where I felt I could help out the most. So, <laughs> so yeah, booking people and doing interviews is kind of how I've been producing the right. show, I guess. So what's curious is that even though we've heard you a lot interviewing all sorts of designers, mm -hmm. I don't think we've heard a lot about your experience as a designer in particular. And I was pretty curious about what your trajectory has been so far, how you got your start in game design, and all of that. Yeah, my backstory. Let's see. So I guess I kind of consider my start in game design um, as beginning in about 2010 when I ran my first game. Just like a lot of people, it was a Dungeons & Dragons game. But even, even in that first campaign, I was all about creating custom content, which was a pain in the ass in fourth edition, but I guess it gave me some good experience because, you know, a few years later when I discovered indie games and stuff, that was kind of how I experienced those games too, is by reading them, digesting them, absorbing them, listening to some actual plays and immediately hacking them for like the, for, for my first GMing experiences in each, whether it was Dungeon World um, Delta Green, whatever. I was, I was always trying to change something about them before I actually, you know, played the game as is. So you would come into the first session of a game already having made tweaks to it in that case? Yeah, in various ways. Like my first Dungeon World game was a funnel adventure, which there's no rules for funnel adventures in Dungeon World. And it had like 13 people in it, and I had special rules to accommodate all those people. In Delta Green, 
I, I kind of made up my own mission objectives and and uh, had had a a campaign that was kind of like a mix of agents where people could come in and out and participate in different cases, and I had rules for that. And then finally, whenever I whenever I started playing Blades in the Dark, whenever I got interested in that, I, I ran a campaign as is actually just as I was running my first Mothlight campaign in the original version of the setting. So I was I had I had the the standard campaign running concurrently with one I had I was I was actively hacking. Well, that is a wonderful segue into our <laughs> next question, which is how were you initially introduced to Blades in the Dark? What got you excited about the system? And, you know, just tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about that. I think it was probably being introduced a little late to the popularity of uh, indie RPGs on G+. I had been getting more and more into indie games um, at the time, I think like around 2015 or so, where I, I had been attending some story game meetups here for, for GM-less games primarily, which are all indie games because <laughs> there's no GM-less uh, mainstream game as far as I know. But that had gotten me interested in the wider world of indie gaming. And one of the big communities on G Plus was for Blades in the Dark. I had missed the Kickstarter, but they were just coming out with what would have would be like practically the final version of the rules, you know, like one version short or something. And so I was able to, because it hadn't been released yet, I was able to do the backer kit thing or, or whatever the equivalent was at that time. And creator myself a, a copy of the book. And whenever I was looking through the materials, I think the thing that immediately grabbed me was all the play sheets and how I felt like, okay, I can run this game with just the play sheets. I don't even need the book to be finished. I did eventually read the book, but that was like very helpful in making me feel like it was approachable and that it was something I wanted to play. Yeah, I completely agree. The sheets that are provided are exactly what they need to be. And it feels like nothing more, like there's not an ounce of fat on them. And uh, I've made heavy use of them every time I've played Blades. They're just so helpful. Yeah, you don't really need to look in, like the book has lots of helpful information, but you don't need to look in the book once you've kind of browsed it once to play the game at all. <laughs> you can just do it from the sheets. I completely agree. So Justin, tell us, I know you mentioned you're in the Pacific Northwest. Um, the uh, I know that there are some big game companies out there. So <laughs> has community played a part in your design work either on or offline and what can you say about that well obviously yes why, why are i mean why are the three people interviewing one one person here for the show uh it's because it's because we have a really awesome community of folks who are invested in in blades in the dark you know in the discord community but there's other there's other communities that have helped me out the story gaming uh community like i was talking about i owe a lot of thanks to ben robbins of microscope among others, uh, who actually ran that meetup here in the Northwest. So I got to see a designer who was pretty well respected in the community, showing other people how it's done and kind of like showing me like, oh, hey, I, I can just relate to this person who a lot of people respect as a designer. And maybe that means I can do it, too. And then from there, a lot of those folks I met there are still my friends and support me in game design. Some of them are designers now, too. Yeah, I could I could thank them all day. Uh, there's a lot of them, but local and internet communities uh, have been really helpful to me. Uh, one of the weird things, actually, I think about myself is I'm I'm surprised that convention community is where a lot of indie designers find 
belonging and peership. And that's not been my experience, actually. Like, not, not in that I haven't found that. I have. But I kind of found that only just in the last couple of years, really. Conventions weren't a place where I really went to seeking this particular kind of engagement until I started designing. Yeah, for sure. I know, you know, especially international designers have a really hard time getting to conventions as well. So that online community is really critical. Yeah, I've, I've definitely found that even in some of my interviews, you know, having interviewed folks from Brazil, from Britain and stuff like that, like a lot of them really benefit from the online communities that have cropped up. And certainly they're highly represented in a lot of uh, these on online communities that I enjoy, which I appreciate. So tell us a little bit more about Mothlight. What was your initial inspiration and what was your initial goals in designing the game? So Mothlight actually was originally just a setting change for the game. I think the inspiration for me, uh, like I said, I, I immediately started hacking when I got it, was for the original Mothlight game, I just wanted a game that could go outside the bounds of a single city. And then I thought about, well, what kind of additional material might I want to explore? And I thought something that would interest me would be to do a setting redesign that involved some science fiction elements while still keeping it kind of low technology environment or, or like more of a grounded environment. So I immediately was like, okay, so maybe like a post-fall setting where you could have ancient tropes that we associate with like prehistoric or ancient times, but involved in like science fiction backdrop. And so I actually kind of drew up some ideas for, for a game set in Reprieve, which is actually the moon in the current setting. It's actually, um, Beacon at the time was the weird place that the moss come, came from in that first iteration. And yeah, we, we had, we were scoundrels. We were in an ancient city kind of backdrop, um, you know, an ancient, not ancient city. And we were earning a living in the slums of that environment. And I think one of our players chose to be from the moon. And that was the impetus for our quest was to like get them back. Was that how you originally established that relationship between Beacon and Reprieve because of that character choice background? Or was it already like in your mind? So what I just described is the first Mothlight setting, but a lot of that work came out of a series of one-shot story games that I played with some friends oh. in which we developed kind of a setting with Microscope. We zoomed in with the quiet ear to explore Beacon, the moon, which was very different at that, you know, in that game. And we uh, played out a couple different adventures in the setting in Follow. And they were very, you know, the setting was very different than what I eventually came up with. But there were elements of it that I really enjoyed and I wanted to transfer over. And so the moths and the seasonal nature of them was a big part of that. And also, I have a biology background. I'm a microbiologist by training, and I really like thinking about life cycles and creatures and all the loveliness thereof. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how that came about. I'm a little sad, personally, that you didn't make a lamp pun in your book when describing Beacon. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. I mean, Beacon <laughs> is already on the nose enough. I felt, I felt like, I felt that was good enough. Well, and it still is, you know, that's still in the book. Sure. Uh -huh. Sure. 
There's only so many mock puns that the game can take. <laughs> <laughs> so Justin, you said something earlier about a lot of the early work on Mothlight was actually exploring the setting through different games, which mm -hmm. is a really cool idea. Um, is that typical to your development process, or can you talk a little bit generally about your development process and, and where Mothlight is in that process right now? That's a good question. I would say yes and no. I've definitely done it before for other games, but where it mostly comes into the design process is just by playing a variety of games. I think people can can kind of populate their mind with fun ideas and like ideas that really excite them. And I, I then can use those ideas uh, to, to inspire the games that I make. So I definitely draw heavily in every game that I make from, from other games I've played. I'm someone who unabashedly reuses material from the games that I've run or that my players have come up with. And if I really enjoy it, I will gladly just sprinkle it into every other game that I play or create. And that is kind of a good shortcut for, you know, creating content, but it's also just like a good idea, I think, for anyone who is trying to create something that they feel they can engage with regularly and with with a certain with a level of excitement is to like unabashedly just take from the things that excite you. It doesn't matter if they've been done before or if you've used it before. Don't be afraid to steal from yourself and from your players, you know, so long as you, you, you thank them in the acknowledgements <laughs> and, and that you're not like stealing anything that they're going, they themselves are going to use, or if you do ask them, but people sometimes hold themselves back and hold themselves to a standard of everything has to be original. And yeah, that's too much work. <laughs> Make it easier on yourself. It is for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you were talking earlier about how you sort of came up into game design among this crowd of designers in the Pacific Northwest and online, and you draw inspiration from other game designs and even from game sessions that you play with your friends or colleagues or whatever. And it really is every game, even if it's just got one author, is a real collaborative effort like that. And I, that's one of my favorite things about game design is, is oh, yeah. sort of seeing the genealogy like that. Yeah, everyone who's ever played a Mothlight game has absolutely contributed to the design of the game as it is now. Yeah, that's something that I definitely coming into game design didn't expect at all. And it was one of the most surprising things to find out. Like, you are not building this world alone, but not only the mechanics, but the people and the creatures and the places that form this idea of your world that you can then convey in the book come from your, the people you're at the table with, right? So it really is a collaborative effort where one person is the one noting all down and making it into something that other people can interact with. But the creativity comes from everyone at the table and that's really, I think, unique to role playing in a way. It absolutely is. And I would I would point out like having listened to a lot of games that John Harper, creator of Blaze in the Dark, has uh, put out there and interviews of him and such. He steals from himself pretty unabashedly as well. Like there's, he's done several games that are set in the Blades in the Dark universe and that he expanded on in Blades in the Dark. I've noticed he reuses names of characters and even like the concept of the character in games that have no relation to one another, um, which is something that I, I also like encourage you to do a lot, like <laughs> reuse those good characters that you've made. 
And so that definitely made me feel it was okay <laughs> to do in Mockway and in other games. Is is seeing how good of a product Blades was and how a lot of that came from him honing those ideas in, in his other games. So Justin, something that I noticed while reading through the book is that at some point you describe Mothlight as a game that deals with themes of hope, trust, and relationships. Would you consider that to be like the defining thread that glues all together, like beyond this very cool setting, or how would you describe Mothlight? It is central to the game. I, I would say that if you're looking to play Mothlight and you want what you're wanting is kind of like a Monster Heart style experience, you might not end up getting that. It is a little more action oriented than than that particular blurb might have you believe but one of my design conceits with mothlight has always been to have some of the action elements of blades in the dark um, and bring them into a new setting but also to kind of refocus a lot of the the party elements of the game which in blades in the dark are about uh, acquiring coin and expanding your reach as an organization or as a criminal organization and completely revamping those to be about party dynamics and about your relationship with the broader world of humanity <laughs> in the game, which depending on how you build up the setting could be very small, could be very intimate. And that has gone through a lot of iterations, but keeping that at the center point of the game definitely has been really integral to the current state of it. And I think it is what kind of sets it apart from a lot of others is that those bond mechanics that I have, the strings, etc., that kind of bring players back to what do the other party members think of me? How can I live up to these expectations that I set for myself? And how can we better the world? Um, those are the things that I wanted to focus on because like when you're talking about sci-fi the scope needs to be a little larger i don't i didn't ever want to lose sight of the fact that it's still about like the people the heroes right the heroes on the quest and so i wanted to ground it in people while still allowing it to kind of reach some great greater heights as far as like what you could accomplish relationships is a very good segue to what our topic is today which is iteration every game goes through so many changes especially in game design and just usually concept and um, maybe essentially their mission statement or whatever mm -hmm. they're about kind of changes. But you really stick with relationships and that human aspect that is very close in all of your changes. How did playtests reveal the things that we never would have considered on our own? How have those impacted? How did I get there? How did you get there? That is a very <laughs> good way to say what I am trying to say. <laughs> the very first effort I made in that regard was, even, even in the original hack, which was largely a setting, just a setting change, I wanted something other than coin. And so I replaced them with straight up Monster Heart style strings, which is to say like a social currency which you could use not just to influence other players, but also to kind of get what you want in the world. The idea that just as coin is influential and dustfall and can get you many, open many doors, so can social currency and like proving yourself to be a trustworthy or worthy person to other people open those doors in the Mothlight setting. 
That has actually kind of stuck around. It's changed. It's now more of a GM currency at this point to introduce complications based on the promises you make. But one of the, as far as iteration, like currently in the game, there are doubt mechanics for players to kind of uh, air their feelings about themselves. There are bond mechanics and, and the friends and rivals list that you keep is a little more important than it is in Blades and actually has some some mechanical impact on your interactions with people. But there were a lot of other systems I tried. Uh, Eli was in a play test with me where I was testing out bond clocks and those worked okay. But ultimately I felt that um, because of that play test, I kind of was like, this is a little too crunchy. It's a little too complicated. And, and some people have, have actually really, you know, when I made the change to make it more about the friends and rivals list again with some modifications, some people actually were sad uh, and actually like wrote me one person actually one fan of the game actually wrote me and he was like what did you do to my bond clocks i was <laughs> i was really going ready to like run this campaign and i was very excited about them and i i just wanted that crunchy relationship drama and i was like okay well you can still play with that version of the game <laughs> but for myself in playing that game again it worked but it it felt a little too, uh, the focus ended up being on, you know, raising your relationship level. And that's not something I wanted. I just kind of want, I more wanted a relationship map. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the form it takes now with the friends and rival list is just what are your connections to people? Do they feel the same way, etc. And also just other versions that it's taken for a while, there was, again, like, relationship levels and they would kind of drive a bunch of the abilities in the game and that was actually a lot of footwork i did to reimagine a lot of the special abilities around that and that was really fun to consider as a designer but ultimately i just ended up scrapping a lot of that work because i again because i came back to the idea like i just want this to be a relationship map and that work wasn't useless it was very informative to me from a design standpoint of like how I can still make it about the relationships without it being a value, you know, like a number. But certainly there's been a lot of iteration, even in terms of like the relationships element that's that's involved design work, <laughs> a lot of design work, and then maybe even scrapping that design work. I know it's common here on the podcast to tie the topic of the show to uh, Blaze in the Dark. And mm-hmm. Oftentimes, that is most appropriate when you're talking about a specific mechanic and how Blades in the Dark handles it. But um, of course, Blades in the Dark also went through a lot of iteration. Mm-hmm. I think anyone who spends time on the Discord server is familiar with the History of Blades YouTube video. I think it's an interview between John Harper and um, Andrew Gillis. We also know there are little trivia bits, like there used to be a murder action, and that's such an evocative, pointed thing. Like anybody who's working on actions in Forge in the Dark game Mm -hmm. benefits from knowing that specific example because, like, it's such a clear picture of how flavor and utility are attention in game design, right? Are there any inspirations that you took from the iterative process that you saw Blades go through or... Is there like a favorite iteration of Blades uh, that you would like to point out or anything like that? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, one is John's willingness to throw things away. It was really inspirational for me and encouraged me to like 
trying new things, sometimes even like throwing things out and then coming back to them after figuring out the problem that was that was keeping me from using it. You know, I've done several versions of the action system that I've just tossed and then kind of come back to before. I have done all kinds of things with the special actions in the game that I have iterated on, then reverted, and then iterated on again. So yeah, uh, being being ready to toss materials is something I would I would say uh, he definitely inspired me to be bold about and to do. I think the other thing is to design something usable, play test it, and then iterate. To not wait until it's done to play test. Because hearing his process and then also hearing some early actual plays of the game where it was very different really made me realize, oh, like he was just doing the bare minimum before he started playtesting this and then iterated based on his experiences. And that's something I've tried to keep to with Mothlight is to, re- you know, that's why I released it so in such an early version as I did. You know, I think I released it in what I was calling like, you know, version one alpha, and now it's like almost a 2.0 beta <laughs> or whatever. It's because I want it, I needed feedback. I'm someone who needs, who likes to have feedback when I design. A lot of people probably would tell me that it was way too early to release the game, but it's been invaluable to have playtested those early versions and to run playtests with like different versions of the game. Absolutely. Yeah. I do find that playtesting is is so, so invaluable. And I know that Harper had several and multiple feedback on um, murder in the beginning. There were some people that really, really enjoyed it and didn't want it to change. But Wasn't he the one who didn't like it in the, yeah. in the end? Yeah. And yeah. he was like the only one who didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But overall, it helped shape the game into the system that it is. And it's mm-hmm. so much more... I think evocative into what what wonderful system it is, and that's a wonderful thing about playtesting. And with Mothlights, I don't remember how many different times you have posted stuff in the Discord yeah. of like, "Oh, I'm working on this," and I'm like, "This is completely <laughs> different than the last time you posted this exact same thing." I'm not as good as some people as posting the change logs, you know, for Mothlight, but people can kind of tell. <laughs> When I'm, when I'm about to change something because I just blurt it out to whoever is listening at the time. Yeah, 100%. Feel free to throw away your stuff. Save a version of that stuff because you might bring it back and you don't want to, and you don't want to have to rewrite it all. I highly recommend you make multiple copies of your work for every version that you do, but throw it, throw it out and reimagine it. Justin, you talked earlier about the relationship mechanic Mm -hmm. and how it went through several iterations and it eventually was kind of crunchy. It had relationship levels and that sort of thing. And you cleared that away. Do you find that generally as you iterate, you are pairing away mechanics versus adding them or is it like a balance? How does that work for you? Oh, it's definitely a balance of, of the things. So like my philosophy for Mothlight has generally been to pair away from Blades in the Dark as a background. And then uh, from there, I've built some things onto it. But my feeling is I kind of started with an idea of what complexity level I wanted the game to be. And my feeling was I want it to be right at or beneath Blades in the Dark in terms of complexity level. I want it to be feel just as 
easy to run upon, you know, upon once you become familiar with the rules. Uh, but I didn't want to deal with some of the fiddlier stuff of Blades in the Dark or stuff I felt like had got was easily forgotten in the game, which some people find really useful to have those vestigial bits to the game that they can then turn into something bigger. But personally, I, I wanted to have a little bit less of that. So I, I had a concept for, I want it to be so complex and for it to be, you know, thinking of like a difficulty level of learning the game. And my my difficulty level I decided upon was medium. <laughs> was I wanted a medium complexity game. So the first thing I did was pare down a lot of stuff. I didn't even have crew books at first for the longest time. That cut out a lot of stuff. <laughs> that cut out a lot of material and made the game very simple. Interestingly, in the latest version, one of the things I'm most proud of is coming up with a formula for, you know, for packs, my version of Cruise, that I think really works for the game and adds a lot of that uh, complexity back in, in the form of setting creation and in the form of goal building for characters. And that's something I'm really proud of. And it is more complex in some ways than the Blades in the Dark crew books but less in others in terms of like tracking of information. So it is a process, but I did come with a with a with the concept of paring down. I had certain things I wanted to cut out. I know for I really love writing special abilities, but I have a love for abilities that give you lots of general permissions as opposed to ones that give you mechanical fiddly bonuses. That sounds really judgy. I'm not all that judgy about it. You can include fiddly bonuses in your game. They're, they're good. But uh, that's just my personal preference. And so that's something I, I tailored Mothlight to, is my own preferences in that regard. Um, and I recommend you do the same, because <laughs> it will be a lot more fun to design. It's very interesting that you bring back, going back to what we mentioned earlier, that you mentioned that the game got a lot more of complexity added back in once you started to implement mm -hmm. the crew books. Because I feel that in Fortune in the Dark, like a lot of the game really lives in those sheets, in the character sheets, yes. in the crew sheets. It's really where the meat of what's happening at the table yeah. comes forth, right? And that's what's interesting about it. And I was wondering if you envision each pact with a different level of difficulty. If you think that some are easier to get into at first, or if it's more of a each pact allows you to have some... Uh, moderation of difficulty within that pact? That's a great question. I, I did and I do. And that's actually still evolving um, because the packs are the big, probably the biggest thing I'm working on right now is adding more packs into the game. Uh, for people who don't know, currently you can play as The Promise, which is kind of an open world quest focused pact, or Scavengers, which is a mission, sort of a mission based one where you're, you're trying to survive in the wilderness or in a difficult situation. And it's one is much more stream, you know, focused than the other. And I would actually say for that reason, it's actually its difficulty is lower. It's difficulty in terms of like complexity of the of the mechanics and also the the footwork you have to do to plan for each session. The promise is more improvisational work. So you ha you have to think a little more creatively about like what's your what are your objectives going to be? What tasks are we going to do? and how the different fronts affect the world. I have a couple packs planned for the game that I have some design work on, and they're probably also going to be more in like more focused, but more mechanically complex 
range of things. So for jammers, it's going to be a sports-themed pact, and it's going to have special sports mechanics that uh, will help you determine like winners and losers in a, in a sports contest. And it's going to have a tournament-style campaign where you go up against your opponents uh, in in battle, essentially. And whether you win or lose, the campaign will continue, but you play out a season of the game. And then there's going to be a... Uh, I also have one planned called Slayers, which is a more action-focused one for players who really like the combat of Blades in the Dark games, which a lot of people do. And it's going to be focused on uh, defending your your territory from kaiju, essentially. Wow. It's fascinating <laughs> that you bring that up because uh -huh. it feels like that goes all the way back to I've got this setting, so let me try it in Microscope, let me try it in yeah. A Quiet Year. And, you know, you've got a basic glue that, ben that lets things exist and coexist together. But the yeah. fact that you are so willing to experiment with not only what happens thematically on screen, but the mechanics that are at play is really fascinating. That's actually how I really wanted to differentiate Mothlight from a lot of other Blades in the Dark hacks, is by making that choice of pact, change your game. Like, change what you're doing completely. And not, not just, like, we're smugglers versus we're assassins. Like, that is pretty, you're doing pretty different stuff if that's the two choices that you have to make, for sure. But you're still trying to, you know, ultimately you're just going after that coin to some degree. Whereas in Mothlight, it, it requires some work on my part to come up with how, how to basically change the entire structure of each campaign based on your pact. That, that definitely requires some thinking. But um, I think it's going to be a lot more engaging and add some replay value to the game for people to have like an entirely different experience, like almost like they're watching a different show you know, set in the same universe. Yeah. Essentially, you're adding that built-in flexibility to allow scaffolded freedom between each individual table. And even from season to season, I've been in many Blades tables to where mm -hmm. the theme or focus completely changes based on something that happens narratively in game. And then so right. everything has to switch and change and a system that is flexible enough to provide uh, essentially mechanics and fiction and narrative that can help flesh that out is just so beautiful when it's, when it's done. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with the past. Something I realized recently is you know, speaking of complexity, if your plan is to do a really long Mothlight campaign, uh, once all the packs are out, something you can do is you can have seasons of that game in different packs based on the fiction that you've established. So there's no reason, you know, you'll have all those mechanics available to you and you can insert them based on the context of what's happening in your game. And I didn't think about that really before I had actually started designing them all, that essentially I was making little modules that you could insert into, you know, into your game at any point if, if you wanted to go that route. Yeah, and I think it's going to be very interesting once the game is out to see how different players decide, okay, I want some mechanics from the jammers and some other mm -hmm. from the scavengers. And, you know, you've got the pieces there to kind of create your own thing if you decide to go down that route, right? Like hacking the game before playing yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, even as a plot point in a in a promise packed game, if you engage a jamming 
session with, with with some rivals of yours, you could bust out those scoring mechanics for for just one session if you really want. Or if you are defending Fallen Leaf from an enormous, you know, moth the size that no one has ever seen before, you can bust out the Slayer's mechanics to see how you do in that in that battle, that kind of a thing. It'd be really cool to see like a group start off as scavengers and then get some sort of sponsor deal and become jammers and then move <laughs> on to be like moth hunters or something. That'd be a blast. That would be cool. Or or maybe competitive moth fighting about uh rings where you use the, the slayers mechanics but with the with the jammers score clock kind of a yeah. thing yeah mm-hmm. so justin you were talking about how the packs can change play pretty mm-hmm. radically how do you balance packs that have a big effect on the overall story being told with a finite list of playbooks that players right. can have for their own character well Speaking of iteration, originally my plan was to make entirely new playbooks for every single pact, and that um, that was a that was a bit much. <laughs> so I changed course, and what I actually did was I made a list of playbooks that I could be really happy with as far as their theme, and I designed the pack such that they were not adding too many mechanics into the player side of the game. So they were all focused on structuring the campaign, having um, additional mechanics for like noting progress towards the goals of the campaign, and maybe some extra, a, a few extra mechanics here and there for like group activity kind of stuff. Like the scoring is an example of that in GMers. But originally, like, uh, it was completely different depending on which pact you chose. So if you were playing Slayers, you could play, technically you could play the, the standard Promise playbooks, but then you had an extra level on top of that of, like, what I was imagining as Mecha or whatever, your weapons that you use to, to fight the Maz with. Not, not dissimilar from Beam Saber, another game which you may have heard about on the show, versus Jammers, which had a... Uh, a single generic playbook that you chose really wildly different options on for like offense, defense, and the jammer, you know, the scorer. But eventually I was like, this is stupid (laughs) for me as a designer. Like I've definitely seen other games where people put that much work and intricacy into, into everything. And I was like, I've already done a lot of this work but I'm realizing that I don't want to keep having to do this going forward. If I add more stuff to the game, it needs to be more modular. And so I I went back and I reimagined the playbooks actually first to be more uh, less setting specific and to have more uh, generic themes um, while still being flavorful. And then that realization was highly integral actually for the latest development in the pack sheets from making them more of a world creation element and like more focused on what session zero is like and establishing the themes of the campaign you're about to play. Uh, and I'm so happy that I did that because they feel a lot better now. They look, they're a lot more approachable. And also I even like came up with new ideas for playbooks and I added a ninth playbook to the game uh, that I really actually like. And the only thing that changes now, if you choose a new pact, is your action list changes to reflect the themes of that game. 
because that's just a very simple cut and paste kind of a thing in my game. And my game doesn't use the traditional experience system for dots and stuff like that. So uh, it was a really easy thing to just like plug and play the different action lists. Through all the different iterations and everything you've done from the very beginning of Mothlight to now, what would you say has been the biggest pitfall or hurdle that you've had to overcome in creating the game to where it is today? My answer to that isn't really going to be very specific to Mothlight. My answer to that is, as much as I am willing to rehash things, as a designer, I do go through periods where like my ego gets caught up in something and criticism can really like make me feel kind of bad for a minute until I get over it. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just it's just about it, this person is just helping me make the game better. And I need to just get over it and think about whether or not to make a change. And sometimes often, actually, I don't make those changes. Like one of my philosophies is to absorb everything that my players are telling me about what they think should be different and then make my own like creative decisions about like whether or not to listen to that. And I encourage, I encourage people to do that. But the hard part is before I get to that point is like preventing myself from not immediately changing something to please someone or to hide my shame <laughs> or whatever in a bad creative choice. Like, I can be kind of impulsive in that regard. And there's been plenty of stuff where I've changed it. And then I've, I've eventually gone back because I was like, that was, I was too impulsive. The, the advice they gave was highly valuable, but not in the way that I took it. So that's been my biggest design challenge. Very good advice. Very good advice. Seriously, I do. I do the same thing when I'm working on something, someone will put in an edit and you're like, Oh no, I need to, I need to immediately go and change that. Or why didn't I see that myself? Not realizing that, Mm -hmm. They are looking at it from an outside perspective. Yeah. And there's a really tough balance of listening and absorbing what they're actually saying or what maybe even not, you know, they might have a suggestion that's completely off base, but it's a sign that you should look at, at least look at that thing and think about it. I tend to believe that, you know, players, especially whenever it's a new game that they don't know very well, like, their suggestions for how to change things are generally pretty off base, but they're pretty accurate as far as identifying what is problematic or difficult to understand. And getting to that point through your own ego is, is maybe the hard part of that experience. Yeah, it's like game design, it has a lot of long, lonely hours, and you're making a game that is intended to be shared with other people. And so there's a lot of vulnerability that comes along with the act of sharing. Designing can be very personal, can be very fulfilling on its own, but then you put it in front of other people and it's like, oh, <laughs> it reminds me of that uh, Yeats poem where he says, but I being poor, have only my dreams. Tread softly because you're treading on my dreams, right? Which... Full disclosure, I learned that line from the movie Equilibrium, so it's not like this is particularly <laughs> Equilibrium? <laughs> the yeah. Matrix ripoff? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Scene Bean, man. He knows how to say a line. Uh, it's stuck <laughs> with me forever, ever since. It's a good Matrix ripoff. Yeah, sure. Um, no, but I, there is a lot of vulnerability, like you say, and it's important to have that detachment or that discernment or that processing time that you're talking about. Uh, for any designer, I, I would imagine even for the folks who are putting out 
hundred thousand dollar plus kickstarters you know like mm -hmm. you've gotta you've gotta have a little bit of that criticism mind activated to be able to process what's going on 100 <laughs> percent. and uh some days it gets to you more than others you know i'm someone who's prone to anxiety at times and it can really like eat at me at times um but you know usually whenever once i process it i'll have like a period of of a high productivity like making some really positive changes so i recommend people do listen to it no matter how hard it is but also keep in mind that like until your game is done it's not done and any criticism that people have um you can you can address it or you can not and it's it's e either is equally valid um you know don't don't hurt beat yourself up for for having to change a thing or for not changing a thing ultimately the game is just a form of expression and however you express yourself is valid that's why i like to see designers of like all different skill levels and design goals in the discord is because it's kind of really there are times where i wish i was just doing a simple like setting change or like just you know, the Unusual Suspects Jam last year was amazing for me because I was like, this is this feels easy <laughs> and it's so validating. Maybe I should just do this. <laughs> Maybe I should just do this from now on as a designer. But then I get, you know, three people interviewing me about my game and that also feels good. Shall we start singing again for you? <laughs> you're in you're in the driver's seat, so. Precisely. It's good that you are aware of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Justin, um, I have another question here talking about iteration on Mothlight a little bit. You've been developing it for more than a year, right? More than a, a couple of years? Yeah, um, I'm thinking about when I started. The initial setting hack kind of counts. I wasn't trying to make a whole new game at that point, even though I did a lot of writing for it that kind of came back just in mostly in just setting info for this version of the game. So I think for as far as actual development on this version of the game, I would say since 2019, I've been working on it uh, actively, which to me, you know, that is a long time. I've done other games since then, so I need to keep that in mind <laughs> that I haven't just been working uh, solidly on Mothlight. You know, I think because of other priorities, it probably has another year of development just because I have other things that I've signed on to or that need uh, tending to. But I'm holding myself to finding some way to release it. I'm curious, with a development cycle that's measured in years, I've, I'm mm -hmm. always in that boat, too. And with a lot of iteration that's happened in that time, has anything remained a constant from the very beginning like has even the core loop been something that has remained true or like any themes or anything like that i'm thinking about it and there might be some small things but no <laughs> so it's like mostly a ship of theseus sort of situation i could look at some of my special abilities that i designed and some of those are really mostly the same you know or i guess the one thing is a lot of the playbook concepts have remained the same just because they are, they were they started out very highly focused on the setting, and even though the game isn't as highly focused on the setting anymore, now, you know now you can actually have the option to create your own setting based on the session zero stuff. Those have still remained kind of the the archetypes that I want to explore with the game, and so they've they've stayed the same. But otherwise, not really. I have been shocked, like in this last iteration, that I even stepped away from the setting a little bit and let people like 
decide what their version of Beacon and Reprieve look like. Like I'm currently in a play test right now with um, two good friends who are in the Scavengers Pact, and they chose to be on a frozen wasteland with no moths in sight at all. Uh, they're, they're scientists who are have survived a collapse of their infrastructure on this remote research planet and are, are basically surviving in this sub-zero planet that there's no resemblance to anything I ever imagined for Beacon or, or Reprieve. So, yeah. I, but I think that's a strength. You can do a lot more and you can do the stuff that your players are interested in. So, no. Nothing's remained the same. <laughs> <laughs> and that's great. That's a good thing. I want to reiterate that. <laughs> Everything's changed for the better. Totally. Speaking of things turning out for the best, we three hosts, being brand new to the show, are here to make things the best that they possibly can be. Mm. So we have a totally new segment of the podcast. It's time for the lightning round. Oh my god. Lightning round. So Justin, tell me, what is what is Mothlight's favorite color? Quick. Uh oh my god. Turquoise. Is it bioluminescent? Yes. Can you befriend the moths? Absolutely. Can you date the moths? You know, no one's done it yet. I'll say that. Can you carbon date the moths? Yes, depending. Depends on what they're made out of. What would we need to carbon date the moths? Uh, you would need a sample of their flesh. Uh, though I think that, I'm not sure if that would work, actually, because it would be live. You know, now you're making me think of science questions. <laughs> I shouldn't have asked a microbiologist this yeah. question. <laughs> well, we all know which one Emma wants to know. How many phases of the moon are there? It depends on your setting. In the original version, one, because it was always, you were always in an eclipse. So just one lunar eclipse all year round. Do you also have a cool name for the sun, or is the sun just the sun? Speaking of moth puns, I call it chrysalis. Yes. Okay. Correct answer. 20 points. <laughs> <laughs> Does the setting of Mothlight have a hollow earth similar to Godville versus King Kong? God, I would love to see people play in that version of the setting. Spoilers, <laughs> Eli. I actually do imply that there are tunnels leading deep into the earth, so possibly. Were they created by the moths or a different species all entirely? Uh, they were created by the predecessors. Dun, dun, dun. Do the moths talk? I think if you're going to date them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you play as a moth? I have not had... Mm, yes. Uh, because I actually leave it for the shell playbook specifically, for example. I leave it up into the air what makes you different. Um, and you very well could be a bioengineered moth of some kind. I don't see why not. Amazing. Well, thank you, Justin, for joining us today. We're going to release you from the lightning round here and now. Uh, but we're so grateful that you came on the show and you gave us all of your insights into your game Mothlight and the topic of iteration. So thanks so much. No problem. Thank you, Eli, Michelle, and Emma. Again, like I would love to see you uh, co-host with me sometime because this is the best little group of hosts that uh, this show has seen, including myself. Oh, shucks. <laughs> I think we're all blushing now. So if any of our listeners want to learn more about you and your game, where would you direct them to? I would direct them first maybe to my Twitter, if you use Twitter, at Mothlands, uh, where you can find links in my profile to my various 
pages on drivethru and itch.io. But you can find Mothlight itself. Um, Mothlight itself is only available on itch.io at moth-lands.itch.io. Uh, it's currently in the beta version. Whenever I do release the book, that will be available on drivethru as well. But uh, until then, you please check out my other games. I have lots of stuff that is completed that I've designed both before and during the development of Mothlight and that has informed uh, what Mothlight has become. So yeah, that's where you can find my stuff. And Justin, anything else you would like to plug in today? This amazing weather. Awesome. Really good, guys. But other than that, no, I'd, I would love to hear about your own work, though, and where we can find that. What do you think? Can you, can you do that for me? Oh, ours? Oh, shoot. Yeah. Yeah, Emma, take it away. All right, so you can find me on Twitter at SpookyMill, and mm -hmm. you can find also my own Fortunate Dark game that I'm developing. It's called Crescent Moon, and you can learn more about it on bit.ly slash Crescent Moon Kickstarter, or just by looking up my Twitter profile and looking at my screenshots of the book that I share at 2 a.m. when I'm very tired. <laughs> <laughs> and Eli? Yeah, so I'll plug, um, I'm working on a Forge in the Dark game of my own called Errant Deeds, Tall Tales in the Blackwood, where you are retelling uh, stories and embellishing on stories about folklore and revolution. Uh, I'm also working on a lightly forged in the dark, but sort of its own thing game called External Containment Bureau with Justin, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, that's proceeding quite well. And you can find information about both of those on my itch page, which is mythicgazetteer.itch.io. You can also follow me on Twitter at zapdynamic. And Michelle? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at mistletoe-t-rex, or you can go to my website, which is just recently launched, voidalspace.com. I am currently collaborating with various other Kickstarters and lovely game designers as such in our Discord, um, working on Slug Blaster, um, Wild Sea, or GMing uh, various games, working on a project myself called Voidal Surfer. That's been lots of fun. Uh, <laughs> still got to do a lot of work on it but I'm pretty sure I'll be making a post about that soon. And this has been a very special episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forged in the Dark games and their designers. Again, I'm Eli. And I'm Emma. And I'm Nichelle. And remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as Hacks in the Dark. Mm -hmm.